Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Welcome back to Coffee and Therapy. Hey. And this episode of Woo! Oh, <laughs> now we finally here. talked and you now were going to just go right through us. <laughs> I was. I was like, I Pick a lane, Alyssa. Pick a lane. I can't. Uh, I'm from New Jersey. We use all lanes. I was going to say, she's, she's, she's the whole highway. Yeah. I'm the yeah. whole highway, baby. Um, <laughs> this is Neuroaffirming Care Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1, we highly, highly recommend that you go listen to that first, as this is a growth step from that first episode where we're going into more of how we put neuroaffirming care actually into practice, how to goal set and those things. So highly recommend listen to episode one first, pause here, come back. If you've already listened to episode one, awesome. We'll jump on in to how to actually be and do neuroaffirming care be neuroaffirming do neuroaffirming care i don't know if we can be neuroaffirming care ourselves that would be quite challenging <laughs> i've had a lot of coffee this morning we're ready ready to go yes because we think and i think personally this is the hardest step of i understand the concept right we understand that brains work differently, that we want to be client-centered, that we want to support people. But what does that really look like in practice? Where is the breakdown? And how can you implement those strategies for yourself? Um, so I don't know if someone wants to take that away first, or I can kind of talk about what I do too, because this is the tough, the tough part. I'd say get it, get it started. We'll we'll just kind of sure. jump in as you as you go. Great. I will try to be clear and consistent and concise. Um, I think when you're looking at how do I put this into practice, you're really focusing your work with the client in mind and looking at brain differences as they relate to skill areas of growth. So when you're doing that assessment process that therapists all do in the initial stages of our work, Determining who this client is, like Courtney said in our first episode, what are the values of that client and their family? And then how does that inform the skills you're going to work on and the areas of opportunity that you see? Because I think the reality and the nuance that gets missed is that being neuroaffirming in your care means not also working on skill growth and skill acquisition. And I think both can come simultaneously. It's how you're approaching that. And often that's going to mean doing it in an organic and natural way through motivators and methods that are centralized on the person and their interests. So we use what you probably have heard this term a lot, a strengths-based approach at my practice, dynamic links. And that means setting those goals based on what we're seeing as areas of opportunity, whether that's communication or attentional control or building levels of engagement to move up the ladder of different skills, we're doing that through interventions we've developed that are based in what strengths the client currently has so that they will engage for a longer duration, it will be more organic and natural, 
and we're coming at it from a place of success. So we're challenging them on a skill through something that's successful. So what does that really look like? Because those are a lot of words you've all heard. So if I'm working on attentional shift and control, which is something I work on a lot, looking at executive function skills, because the reality is for our daily lives, we're constantly having to be flexible in our brain patterns. We're constantly having to shift what we do, having to adapt to our environment. That involves a lot of problem solving and decision making. This is why I'm so passionate about executive function skills, because executive function skills are life skills. It is so much of what we do every day. So if I'm wanting someone to practice regulating and being in charge of their attentional control and their attentional shift, I'm going to do that with something they're really good at. So if I have a person who's really good at patterns, we're going to start with something that's patterns and sequencing and switching between those patterns. So if they're really good at patterns, I find a lot of times my clients like to then play boom whackers and specific boom whacker patterns. So we'll have, you know, four different sets of patterns we're playing on the boom whackers. If you're listening and you're not a music therapist, you're like, what the heck are boom whackers? They're like color coded tubes that make a pitch and they're so fun and so cool. Check them out. So many like TikToks around them. But I'll have different patterns and sequences that we're doing boom whacker play with. So I'll have, you know, pattern chunk one, pattern chunk two, pattern chunk three, pattern chunk four. And I'm moving them around. So they're constantly having to shift their attention. I'm flipping them over at different points. I'm shifting the way the patterns work because I know they're going to quickly respond to it. It's the strength they have. They're seeing that shift and they're able to transition to it. But they're flexing that part of their brain that's stopping initiating, sustaining, and engaging in that attentional control. And then I'm going to level up from there to a skill that might be more purposeful and functional in the real world world than following color patterns. But as I'm going to start in a strengths-based place and often use that as sort of a psychoeducation way to say, okay, remember when we did this with those four patterns, I want you to apply that to these words. I want you to apply that to this context that's more functional and scaffolding up those skills based in something they're really strong at. And we can always go back to it. I think this is a piece that is often critical for neuroaffirming care that I teach. I usually show the visual of the DIR floor time pyramid, which maybe we can put in an Instagram post or reel for this. So you can see what that looks like. But the base of the DIR floor time pyramid is regulation and attention. My first step is always to get my client regulated, which in neuroaffirming care can look different with different sensory needs and processes. And then to make sure they're attending to whatever the task is at hand. Then that builds up to purposeful engagement, builds up to two-way communication, builds up to shared social problem solving, then logical thinking, and then finally creation of ideas. Now, different people fall at different parts of that pyramid naturally, but oftentimes I think what we see in neuroaffirming care and where we lose how do we work on skills is when our clients tap out on whatever level of that pyramid we're working on. Let's say I'm working on that purposeful engagement of reciprocal communication back and forth, level three, when they lose attention, they're back down to level one and I have to rebuild them back up the pyramid. And I think that's how functional goals and skills can work with a neuroaffirming mindset is knowing that you're constantly moving up and down from reaching that skill, coming back down, re-regulating, gaining engagement, and building back up to that skill again. That we can't require someone to be only working on those skills for the duration of a session in any way that's outside of what's going to give them inherent success to keep them motivated. So that wasn't short. It was, you know, five minutes, but <laughs> that's my 
my kind of approach to it and just a functional way to look at it. And I see Noah and Courtney have faces, so I'm happy to answer questions. Well, that was the very, of course, because this is not only an area that you're super interested in, but you're actively enrolled in a program that is constantly prompting you to reevaluate your orientation and develop new thoughts and ideas. I think it was, it's a little heady. It's a little heady. And, and that is my, that was my fear in the last episode, which I tried to capture, which is guys, you can, we can all be doing neuroaffirming work, but it doesn't have to be so, wow, this like giant ethereal inaccessible idea. And Courtney, you are so great about making things really concrete, really tangible. So can we take where Alyssa took us, which in my head, that's like the, that's like the, the top of the pyramid if we're thinking of it. All right, I'll come back down. So like, can we have Courtney kind of bring us to like a foundational place? And then Sarah, maybe you and me can kind of be those next rungs in the ladder to connect Courtney with Alyssa. Alyssa, who's just always <laughs> this collaboration. I love it. Yes. I appreciate I appreciate all and that that's why the four of us I think are such a nice combination of people. Because yeah. we approach these things in so many different ways in terms of how we talk about it and express it, but it yeah. it's reaching someone who's listening in their own way and how they process information, how they take in the world. So for sure. So Courtney, like Walk us through, because you are doing supervision, so so much of what you're doing on your day-to-day is being able to talk with these therapists and say, how, what are you using to create a goal? What is, what, is, what is informing this? Why is it important to the person that you're serving? So can you talk a little bit about maybe some practical examples of what your therapists are seeing? The actual types of goals that they create, and then what that looks like in therapy when they're working with the kiddos yeah sure no in the back of my head I was just like I was making faces at Alyssa because I'm just like wow I wish I could articulate (laughs) things like that (laughs) because I'm just like oh that's so great that's why we have each other because I I think like long-winded people like myself and Alyssa probably sometimes strive for being able to boil it down into its most essential parts. And I think you are so great at naturally capturing that you do that so succinctly and so well. So, and I need you you to do that because me in this time, my face was completely (laughs) glazed over. You went, what the heck Alyssa are you talking about? I was with you for like the first couple of seconds. And then it was just like, (laughs) what's for dinner? I was like, I was like, let me check Insta. <laughs> well, you also have to consciously make the choice to be fully present in the discussion, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, she she tried, okay. but then but then she was rejecting. Yeah, she was rejecting. She was rejecting. I just I felt it happen. Like I felt my eyes just like stop focusing, and I was just like my head. As a strategy I give for my ADHDers, you are in charge of you in this situation, and to remember the capacity that you possess and using those strategies. Yes. Oh my gosh, no! I just saw your name on the screen, Noah. Speaking of little ADHD moment, I didn't notice it. I didn't either. Well, no, don't, don't, don't even say it out loud. They have to watch episode one. 
Yeah. You have to watch episode one. And oh, then- and if you can guess, if you can guess what Noah's name is, you win a prize. Maybe not. You win a. You win a. Yes. You win a recognition on. You win a shout out on social needs. Heyo. Yeah, there you go. I like that. I like that. All right, Courtney, reel it in for us. Yeah, yeah. Break it down. Okay. So coming back from like part one, right? Continuing after the assessment period. So. We use um, like normative based assessments. My favorite is the Early Start Denver model. Um, I really like it because I wholeheartedly believe it's very neuroaffirming. Um, it actually just really aligns with um, like relationship building. It re- aligns with my values as a as a behavior analyst. So, um, relationship building, meeting the child where they're at, yada yada. So one thing that I can confidently pull from Melissa's statements was um strengths-based I too um mm-hmm. use a lot of strength strength-based approaches and what that is is me looking at my client's assessment results and determining like some skills that are kind of on the cusp of them like fully showing consistently um and tying those in with skills that um they don't have really at all. Um, again, keeping in the back of my mind um, family values and preferences. And so when I'm like Noah was saying, when I'm working with um, my residents, my supervisees, a lot of the time I'm finding myself redirecting them to talking with the parents. Have you checked into the parents on what's going to be realistic for them? and their family life because we're not there all the time. We might be there for, you know, 20 to 35, 40 hours a week. But outside of that, there's mornings, there's nights, there's weekends, there's vacations, there's all this other stuff that we're not there for. And so I regularly find myself redirecting my residents to say, uh, or to check in with the parents, you know, what do you want this to look like? Is this something that you're going to be able to utilize outside of sessions? And so, um, once they hear that, a lot of them are like, oh, yeah, like I never I never really thought about the importance of that. And so that's kind of step one for me. Um, and then, you know, we're having those meetings with parents. We're having those open conversations. They're saying, you know, actually, I don't think that will work for us or yeah, let's try to find how we can make that work. And then we're, we're, we're collaborating with them and making tweaks to, you know, the way that we're approaching approaching various programs and so then and as kids age you would have those same conversations with with the child themselves exactly right exactly does this work for you is this an approach that is purposeful I mean I think that's a really easy question to ask yourself when you're trying to do neuroaffirming and in general client-centered care yes yep exactly the best part about that I think that you said was is this something that you can like maintain outside of the time that we're here or in my case outside of sessions I think that is a huge huge piece of it because I I I don't know if you guys find this this may be something very um particular to the work that I do but like in session it's like yeah oh we have these like great like breakthroughs and these realizations and these like big aha moments and it's like oh my gosh I need to change this I need to do this differently and then they go away (laughs) and then they come back and it's like, so how did that work for you? And they're like, well, (laughs) I didn't do it at all. Like it was really, and, and I think that 
sometimes our aspirations might be a little bit too high, like too big for our britches kind of thing where, you know, you might have that goal and you might say, yes, I could like in session, this feels really good. I think I can, I can repeat this. I think I can, you know, model this throughout the week or throughout the day or whatever. And then the reality of life is that it's not able to be repeated and to be, you know, consistently um, done. So yeah, I like how you said that. There's not like that. those opportunities for a generalization kind of in their natural yeah. environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really like that piece of that really like that stood out to me where in, in that collaboration, not only saying what is like, what are your goals? What do you want to do? But saying whether it's to the caregivers or to the client themselves, mm-hmm. can you, is this sustainable? Like, can mm-hmm. you actually do this and repeat this and, and live this outside of this room right now? I love that piece. Yeah. Well, I think that's Mm -hmm. a huge pro for ABA, right? When people are all evaluating critically what therapies they want most for their child or for themselves is that it is often Mm home-based and it's all about functional real world skills. And that's aligns with the type of music therapy practice I do. When we're setting goals, we're looking first at the assessment and that functional skill transfer. What is the functional skill we're looking for here? And we're beginning with that and then creating a treatment plan around that, that then is strengths-based and person-centered and affirming focused. But you're looking at what do we actually need and what's gonna be sustainable first. Mm -hmm. And I think for listeners, if you're struggling to write affirming goals and you're not starting there, that could be a really good reframe of, what does this client actually most need to succeed in X, Y, and Z environments? Mm-hmm. And how is that sustainable and attainable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my guess is some of you, because I've had these moments too, are questioning like, well, what if we have a parent that isn't even involved or doesn't know how to be involved or doesn't want to be involved, all of the above, right? Because we've all run into those situations. I still run into those situations. We have families who are still grieving receiving a diagnosis. And so they aren't even in a place to get to where they're collaborating with us on these goals. They don't know what they want it to look like inside of their home, outside of sessions. And so those can be really difficult moments too, right? And I think in those cases, like, Just keeping in mind, like, our job is still to meet the parent and the child where they're at. And so it's going to be a little bit more tricky to, you know, have those collaborative moments to really determine, like, what the family values in relation to, like, planning for their child. But um, it's still, like, just meeting them where they're at with this strength-based approach is, is your best bet in those moments, I think. And... Like we're we're fortunate enough, I mentioned before, we have LCSWs on staff who we can refer to work with our families to help with those, you know, grieving processes, meeting the families where they're at to where I personally can't because that's far out of my scope. And so um, just at that point, pulling in whatever resources you can to support the families um, is is a good is a good step there because I know it exists. I know what it exists. And, you know, at that point in time, maybe an in-home therapy isn't best for you. And that's okay too. Maybe you as a parent, if you're listening, you need that space away from your child. I get it. Um, I totally get it. And so um, it's okay to, again, as a parent advocate that maybe this therapy isn't the best for you right now. Um, But I mean, parents and providers, I still would encourage you to collaborate with each other no matter where you're at in the process because that's still – 
you know, you're, you're a team, right? We're all working towards the benefit of, of your child. And um, we're here to support you and your children. So please don't, don't hesitate to collaborate with us, even if you feel like you don't know what to say, you don't know what goals you're envisioning. And, and that's okay, too. So I did want to kind of like, bring that up. But yeah, um, jumping back to like, some things that I talk to my supervisees about. Um, a lot of times I've run into um, situations where they might be working on a goal that's um, above where their client is at. And so I kind of help them, you know, figure out a how they got there. Usually they're coming to me because it's we're not seeing any progress or we're not seeing any success. And then you know, we can talk through like, well, why did you select that goal in the first place? Okay, well, what are you seeing? Are they, you know, even showing you any any types of, of progress or any types of skills that are related to that goal? And, you know, sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, sometimes they don't know. And so then we kind of talk around, well, you know, what was the benefit of writing this goal? Are there things like steps that we can take um, to go backwards and, you know, again, reaching them to get to that point? Um, so that's something else, something else that we've seen. And um, I'm trying to think of like some other examples. Yeah, I think that was a tangible way to say all the heady things I said. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> If, yeah, of like if you're working on a skill that's too much, go back to the beginning. Yeah, and figure out how you got there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think and because cool. neuroaffirmation is so, we talked in the last episode. It's it's a term that folks are slowly becoming familiar with, outside of the our therapy professions, but even still within therapy professions, and it's it's normal. I don't like that word. It is. You can expect that in some spaces, those types of approaches or those ideologies are going to be met with some skepticism, some hesitation, some criticism. I know working in schools as a school-based therapist, supervising a team of school-based therapists, there's a constant fear on the team that what they have to say will be met with increased skepticism by virtue of the fact, number one, they're music therapists, but number two, they're approaching things from a model that is vastly different from a lot of the origins that we see in schools, which I would say have a a medical model kind of vibe to it. And what I say to them and what I try to remember in my work is that skepticism and hesitation comes from a place of, of fear. It comes from a place of the unknown. When I am working on a team where I feel like the strengths-based approaches like Alyssa is talking about, or that questioning of, well, but why are we doing this? How, how is this serving the client kind of comes up? I look for opportunities to plug in even beyond maybe where I typically would. So I might ask if I can be coming to more team meetings. I might offer an in-service about some, some of these foundational frameworks um, and and I, I encourage myself to, to trust myself when I'm having these conversations and be able to say, hey, guys, I, I'm going to be asking some questions. I'm asking these questions because it helps me to better understand where you're coming from so that we can find a place to meet in the middle and, and have an, an understanding of, of each other's different perspectives. And I think when you meet someone in the middle, especially when they're feeling fearful or apprehensive, 
it helps everyone to get on the same page. It helps these ideas of neuroaffirmation to take root because they are having that conversation with someone that they they trust, that they respect, right? It, it comes back to some of these foundational ideas of like, what is important about being a therapist? Creating a space where trust is shared, where people feel safe, where people feel heard, where people feel affirmed in where they are. With neuroaffirmation, it's very easy, like Alyssa said in the last episode, to jump into cancel culture. Well, you're not doing this and you are not neuroaffirming. And then we're jumping into assumption land of, well, you don't want to learn. You don't want to change. You don't care about the client. Caring about the people that we serve looks different for different people. And I think that the best way you can practice neuroaffirmation is by being open to dialoguing with people who share completely different views from you being really confident in where you stand, but being willing to hear what they say and also let that influence your perspective as well. And I think that foundation of trust is so critical, especially in the schools, because I know when I was at conference and the biggest thing I hear from my team that I we heard everywhere is, how do I do this in schools? Because schools are coming so much from a medical model. And I know where we live, a very outdated behavioral model mm-hmm. um and building that i'm happy to talk with them about it <laughs> well it's and we yes for sure i gotta bring Noah in for a team training i'm <laughs> like how to i think the hardest part for therapists who are listening to who are neuroaffirming but are in a system that's not mm-hmm. is how do you push back and setting that trust mm-hmm. and then saying based on you know what you've seen and you've seen me give to your students and how they've responded. Do you trust me to try this thing for five minutes? Um, We have so many early childhood classrooms where they're sitting in cube chairs with desks that lock them into their chair for the duration of the music therapy group for 30 minutes in a circle, unable to move, unable to interact because their level of regulation is so high, right? Everyone that you can't see the faces that people are making, but they're shocked. (laughs) This is such a standard practice in preschools, kindergartens through, you know, second and third grade, because uh, it's not a restraint system, right? It's like a desk that goes on your chair. The kids tend to just sit there once they're in there and they have that spatial boundary because it is a sensory boundary. But how can I give you that sensory experience in a way that is more affirming and not shutting you down? So my therapist personally have had a really hard time challenging these teachers to let their kids come out of that chair to let them explore the space, to engage with them in motor activities. You know, we've had teachers tell us we want no motor activities. It's too much for them. And I'm like, can you trust that my team has been educated by people who are very experienced in sensory strategies and understanding of what we can do in this moment to aid in regulation so that the motor acquisition isn't too much? Can you give us the opportunity to prove to you that there might be a different way in a different capacity and having that conversation of, I've shown you what's possible. Can we try this for the last three minutes? That way, if it's chaos, we can transition that chaos into their seats for the next act. But I think first you have to ask more questions and invest in their narrative, right? When, When someone sees that you have truly taken the time to pause and to just listen. So in that example, I'm sure, Alyssa, that your team has done some or all of these steps. But I would not only ask some follow-up questions about, okay, so I'm hearing, I'm hearing that we don't want to do motor activities. Can you tell me what types you have done? What does that look like? Tell me what those responses look like. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's, it's looked like this. And 
what what are we using to really land at that conclusion that this is a sign that it's it's too much right so asking asking those questions from a place of respect getting some more of that information and then i would probably do something like you know is it okay i I'll look at my schedule for the next couple of weeks and see if I can clear out some time. Can I just come and be a fly on the wall and, and see what's happening in the classroom? Right? Because again, they they are coming from a place where they truly care about the well-being of the children. They have read that child's response to that activity to mean X. And that mm-hmm. is what helps them get through the school day, right? They're like, Yeah, no, for no sure. motor, right? It's too much. This is, this is my, my, my ship that I'm going to sail through to the end. So when, when we come from this place of, oh gosh, well, I want to be so respectful of your perspective that I, I just don't even know what to say. That's not necessarily representing anyone's best interests, right? Right. I, I think it's a combination of saying, asking and doing, and then having them be a part of not only the learning process with you, but trialing things together. So like, like we've yes. talked about, if this is a model that is very behaviorally driven, let's take some data together. Let's mm-hmm. come up with a data sheet. Let's take data together. I'll take data in music. You take data in the classroom. We are on a shared plane and that we're looking at the same things, right? I think as cheesy as it sounds for me, it comes back to collaboration. Just keep yes. finding opportunities to collaborate. And that is how we support neuroaffirming care is because truly- yeah together we are better. And these kids, especially in schools, they have a whole team. Amazing. Let's leverage every single person. What a gift that we have five different therapists. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge. Like it's the blessing and the curse because coming in as contractors, my team doesn't have time to come in on a day and be the fly on the wall. We don't have time and we are not a part of the IEP meetings because most None of our work is on the IEP. So we're not considered necessarily part of the team in that perspective. Have we gone out of our way and facilitated those relationships? Absolutely. Have we invited OTs, PTs, SLPs to come sit in on the sessions so we can educate them? Absolutely. And it is that education process of saying, I'm going to try this thing and here's why I'm trying it because here's what's happening. And then oftentimes I get the question of, oh my gosh, wow, what an interest... I I didn't know about that. Can you tell me more? And I'll say, I'll send you an email. I'll send you that research. I'm happy to set a meeting to talk about it. I think it could be that strategy as well if you don't have the time in the moment. But just like part of neuroformia care is involving the client in that and saying, here's why I'm doing this for you because it's going to help you with X once, you know, they're old enough for those cognitive processes. I think that's a critical part of care within the stakeholder team as well of I'm doing this because this. And the evidence shows me this, so we're going to try it. I hear you're concerned about the motor things. I hear you're concerned about getting them up. As long as they're safe, I want to give them that opportunity to explore so they can purposefully engage with it. And here are the strategies I'm using to support that so that they will be successful in that. And I think that's the critical part of neuroaffirming a care that's, that's not really taught in traditional education training for special education or for general education of what's underlying what we're seeing. And that comes from additional professional development and education. 
of if you're trying to stop this response from happening, we have to understand why that's happening, right? And that's a very behaviorism approach, but often that shakes down to we're looking at what behaviors and how to stop or start certain behaviors without understanding the root and analyzing, is this a sensory processing difference that's part of their neurodiversity that we have to keep in mind at all times? Yes, then that's a critical component of neuroaffirming care. Is it social overload and the school environment is just not a successful place for them? Yes, okay, that's part of their neuroaffirming care. What is the least restrictive environment for them, really? All of these components come into the skills we're working on and how we're delivering that service. And I think this is a whole other topic, but Mm -hmm. the reality of the structure of the school system is not set up to do that because there isn't, a teacher doesn't have the time in the day to do that Mm -hmm. for 10 students, you know, in a small classroom, per eight students in that classroom, let alone 25 to 30 students in a typical general ed classroom. Yes, there there are some systems that I don't want to say are broken beyond repair, but that are so flawed it, it takes a lot of time, investment, and brain power to figure out how can we work best within this model. It's not mm-hmm. perfect, but it's better than what we're doing right now. Yeah, it's... Yeah. But, and I but I think, I think that becomes a, a cop-out. I think that becomes a cop-out, yeah. too, right? Like, oh, uh, well, I'm case managing 15 kids. Like, I, I just need to get through the day. Sure, but you're getting through the day because what you're doing in some aspects isn't working and it can be improved for your sake, for the kid's sake. And again, this, I want this idea to generalize across settings. It doesn't just have to be for schools, right? Sarah in private practice, Courtney in ABA clinic work or home-based work. You know, if, if it's truly feeling excruciating, we're missing something. We're missing something here. Mm-hmm. Oh, you hear a yeah. baby in well, the background. I'll mute. <laughs> in the back of my mind, too, like, I just want to propose, like, for us to consider bringing that into being, like, part of our processes, right? Like, we're always going to be setting aside that time. Okay, so, Alyssa, for example, you guys are partnering with a new school, right? Part of your – I'm going to call it onboarding. Part of your onboarding with jumping into this new school – is okay here's our process we're going to set up these observations we're going to set up these meetings before we're able to even get in to provide services to the students and if we start potentially exploring that as as our expectations as as therapists like that could be a game changer for so many things right if if we set the stage as that that's our expectation you know we could be then opening up those doors for other people to be like, oh yeah, we do need to make the time for this because this is important. Because I do the same thing. I try whenever I can to partner if my if my clients have other therapies. I try my best to partner with them right off the bat because if they're working on something that we also want to be working on, we better be working on it in the mm-hmm. the same with the same approach right we better be collaborating on it because if not we're not we're doing an injustice to our clients so I think like Noah when yeah. you said like a cop-out right it's easy to do that it's easy I do it myself you know I don't have enough time for that but then if yeah you oh well, I, I did I did what I could all right yes yeah. yeah yeah exactly but if we figure out a way to set that as like the standard the standard practice like think about the ways that you know, we could 
you can make change, major change. I think it's really hard because those collaboration calls aren't billable. That time meeting with teachers aren't billable. And the reality is it's hours every day. It can be. Give me a call. Happy to talk with you. (laughs) No, I don't know that it can be for us. I, I mean, I think there's, I definitely think there's things we can do and systems we can do, but I know parents won't pay for that. I know our schools won't pay. We're the way we provide services is we're considered the teacher of record. So our classroom teachers are actually not even in the space when we're there. We're considered the substitute teacher for that time for them to have a planning period. So there's so many systems you're working within too for people who are listening and going, I want to, but I can't. There is some reality to that I can't. Um, and I think the critical component is in the session then t- describing what you're doing narrating what you're doing to the people that are there for both the person you're supporting and the people who will continue to support them. Yes. I talk those first few months. What are we doing? Why am I structuring my session this way? And we make a lot of printouts and we're definitely going to be shifting our model to the first few weeks of school being much more observation and discussion based time versus leading time that the assessment period is also for the stakeholder team we're collaborating with. But I think if you're listening how do I do this in a way that's not extra time? Because you may not have that extra time. And I think that's a reality is narrating and describing what you're doing, have printouts ready to leave with them and explain what your expectations are of them as well. We have shifted um, what we give to teachers when we first work with them and paraprofessionals of, we do not want you to put for the first four to six weeks, your hands on a student at all to support them in that motor skill or motor plan or anything we're asking for, because we need to see what level they can do independently. And we want to see what's the least invasive prompt level that we can do. And that's just not a standard practice that's being there. And that's a standard practice in neuroforming care of having the least invasive prompt hierarchy. I mean, that's a strategy that we can have. Um, and it's, it's so challenging because the systems and the way that it's been approached for so long are deeply ingrained. So it really can feel like an uphill battle. I know it's my therapist's biggest complaint is that they are burnt out mm-hmm. from seeing teachers and paraprofessionals doing what we would consider traumatic and harmful behaviors mm-hmm. to children and counteracting everything we're trying to do. Yep. And... Yes, I know one but of But neuroaffirming our... care can exist. We strive yeah. to have these massive, like, neuroaffirming care has to be this grandiose act or series of acts. Neuroaffirming care can be two minutes in a session. It can be two seconds in a session, right? We strive for, we want everyone to be on the same page. Of course, of course, of course we do. But Alyssa, to speak to what you're getting at, which is, Sometimes, in some places, in some ways, change is very, very difficult to actually put into place. Okay, then remember that you are that 30 minutes of the week, that however much time where you are introducing something that is truly neuro-affirming care. And while it's hard to just close the book at the end of the day and say, well, at least I know I did something that I can be proud of and that I know is about the students, sometimes we just have to start there or or exist there. That's, yeah. that's okay yeah, too. I, yeah. Putting that bubble up as I say of, I'm not going to let all of this impact me right now. I know mm-hmm. I'm doing purposeful and meaningful work. Mm-hmm. And it's based in those core questions of 
what do they need? Why am I doing it? And then building from there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of a good leeway into questions you can ask yourself when you're setting neuroaffirming goals and you're doing neuroaffirming work, how to kind of recenter yourself. If you're like, well, how do I even start questions that you can prompt yourself with to set those goals and then create those treatment plans from there. So I know Sarah has a Well, I can jump right in. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about this for hours and really just trying to dig deep. Um, I think this is really, this is really deep and heady guys, just so you know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you're really, this is like a build-up. Really? I know, just, just, just get ready, get ready. Just asking yourself, who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? Who is this serving? Um, you know, I think <clears throat> something that, that we have discussed in like my therapy colleague circle has been a, a lot around... Um, like my goals as a therapist versus the goals that the client is, is verbalizing or expressing or identifying for themselves and recognizing that sometimes those might not line up. They might not be the same. Sometimes they are, and that's beautiful and that's wonderful. But like my goals and my viewpoints really don't matter. (laughs) This is, we need to know who we're doing this for, why we're doing it. And if the answer to that is not, the client and to help them reach their goals, then that's probably not neuroaffirming care. Snaps for Sarah. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yes. came up with that all on my own. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> copyright. <laughs> copyright. Sarah. Twenty twenty. Copyright. Yes. Right. Heyo, chuggy, chuggy. I think. I think another really important question um, that you kind of tapped into a little bit, Courtney, is this isn't the most affirming phrasing to say it, but the first part is what accommodations and considerations do I need to take into my brain to best support this client that's really going to impact the upstream issues that we see? That we see a lot of our clients who are neurodivergent that have a lot of splinter skills because they have been able to cope and learn and they have strengths in areas that we still might have to support the basis of. So thinking about the neural differences and the different wired brains, how does that impact the upstream and what's coming next so I can set them up for the best success? So really looking at what does the research show me that different brains might be experiencing in these situations that I'm putting them in and I'm trying to treat them within. Piggybacking off of that, that, my question would be, is what I'm doing accessible to my client's reality? Mm. So taking into into consideration, I, I just go immediately to the senses. Am I visually providing an experience that is accessible for them? Am I, from an auditory perspective, using tools that is accessible for them and regulating and engaging for them? Am I creating opportunities physically and motorically for them to engage with what I'm doing? So really, it's it's a starting place for almost kind of going through some of those those fundamental 
you know, human senses that we experience and making sure that we're tweaking it and having those considerations in everything that we bring into therapy. And I wanted to leave that as vague as possible so that it could plug into non-music therapy streams of thought too. I love, I think that's even more basic than, than asking like, who am I doing this for? And it kind of, it aligns with that. But I, you know, I think that's something that in its most basic form is one of the, the most important things that you can offer to a person that you're working with. Yes. Because it's not going to do a thing for them if, if it, if they can't, sense if they can't pick up on right. it if it's not a, if it's not connecting with them visually auditory auditorily right. auditorily is yep. that a word yeah um, <laughs> or, or whatever the case may be you know the very first thing we have to do is make sure that the client can can receive and work within what we're doing right has to be accessible mm-hmm. yeah yeah courtney yeah. i thinking yours is like it, yours was so good noah yeah, like that I, was oh really my good god yeah. Noah's just shining oh on this gosh. oh my god no that was so Dude, good gold star i don't for know you on today's podcast yeah seriously oh no is this reward and like behavior oriented <gasps> structures to this I'm not here for that. I don't want to go. I, don't I, I want all the gold stars. Thank you. I am extrinsically motivated. Thank yes. you. Yeah, she wants yes. to add yes. them to her fur coat. Hey, I do. Well, I think that's a good question I ask too, is how are you motivated? Ooh. If someone is extrinsically Ooh. motivated, okay, that's important to know. If yeah. nothing's going to motivate them extrinsically, all right, how do I meet you intrinsically to get you to want to do that? Thing? Mm-hmm. I think and how do I manipulate motivation. extrinsic motivation to ultimately strive <laughs> to be for intrinsic? Yes. Because that yes. is arguably the most important type of motivation to support and encourage. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think this one is like so simple and so basic, but like also just taking to consideration, like, is this realistic for my client in general? Like, is this realistic yeah. for, for where they're at? It fits in with um, what all of you said, like, why am I doing this? Is this accessible? Is this realistic? Like all of that, like, I'm not going to be working on, you know, handwriting with my two-year-old client. Like, that's just, that's not realistic. But there are some people, going to be honest, they think that it's appropriate and it's not. Like, do your research. Oh, yeah. Do your research. Yeah, been there. Yeah. <laughs> or yep. is it purposeful? If yeah. you're working on handwriting realistic for 12 years, yeah. well, we have iPads now. Let's let's maybe not drill down on handwriting. Let's maybe yeah. let that go and focus on something that's more purposeful. Yeah. Or when I see mm-hmm. a, a money exchange goal of, you know, we'll give dollars and be able to count the coins. I'm like, how about we teach how to use a debit card, right? Yeah. It's still functional use of money, but what's purposeful yes. in the society in which we currently live. Yeah. So is it realistic? Is it purposeful? Is it accessible? Who mm-hmm. are you doing this for? Mm-hmm. And how do you make sure you set them up for success? Mm-hmm. I was just about to say that. I was going to jump in. <laughs> just uh, it, right. Gold star for you. <laughs> Gold star for the whole team. But yeah, setting well, people I up think, for success for sure is a yeah, huge yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah. 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 I guess that's a better way to have said what I said, like the upstream issues is how do I make sure for you're successful? For success, they are self-defining. 
Correct. Exactly. 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 Right. Yeah. And yeah, what does success look like to you? Yeah. How do you know when you've reached that? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's going to look different yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every single person. Defining yeah. success first. Yeah. 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 Oh, this went, this went, this took a little, a little bit of a turn that I wasn't expecting, but I love it. We just kind of got yeah. real into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we were struggling I think those before are... the recording. <laughs> just... <laughs> we just so many ideas and so many ways to approach this. And it is, it's a theory, right? Neuro, not a theory, but it's a, a philosophy. That's, that's the right word. Neuroaffirming care is a philosophy. It's not a protocol. It's not laid out for you in a script. It's easy to understand, but hard to put into practice. So our hope is that those questions can give you tangible takeaways to use to make it successful for you, whether you have the time or not, to ask yourself those questions at least and to start reframing your work for the people that you serve with these easy to use tools. And philosophy becomes tangible through dialogue, which comes back to my sentiment about collaboration. But really, I think, like Sarah said, we went into this episode being really excited to talk about it. But at least in my head, I was thinking, I'm not really sure how this is going to play out. But what I did do is I trusted that the rapport that the four of us have would absolutely get us to a place where anyone listening will leave Mm. with at least one thing that will inform their own learning process, their own practice and and theory of practice. So I, yeah, like like you, Sarah, I'm really happy with how this wrapped up. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll link in the show notes more resources too to uh, check out on social media that have really clear tips and breakdowns of how to have neuroaffirming care. And, you know, we'll keep pulling this up on the podcast and hopefully bring on some more guests that can give us even more tips in the future. But for now. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Coffee and Thera Tea. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and Thera Tea. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.